You are listening to audio from Redeemer Church in Tomball, Texas. To find out more information about our church, visit us at makingmuchofjesus.org. Amen. Well, it's good to see you. And please take your Bibles or your devices or a pew Bible around you and go to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2 is where it will be this morning, our third sermon in the series in the book of Hebrews. And now we're kind of wading further um, into the water of the book. And we're seeing, I think, really the driving burden of the entire book, as we said in the second sermon, that the Hebrew Christians are really being tempted to leave Christianity behind and to go to Judaism, to go back to the Jewish kind of Old Testament way of things. And I think the driving burden of the book and kind of the essential application of the book of Hebrews is found right here in chapter 2. And I think the heart of what we are to do as Christians, there's kind of a big warning today in chapter 2. And so as we do every week, uh, if you're able, let's stand together for the reading of God's Word. And we'll begin in chapter 2, verse 1. And we'll go through to verse 9. And the Holy Spirit says, Therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Let's pray together. Father, help us now. Help us all now by your spirit to pay attention to what we have heard from your word, to hear what it is that you have for us today whether we have been walking with you for decades or whether we are newer Christians or whether we're not even saved, that we don't know Jesus, that would you meet us all today, Lord, in a supernatural way. Help us, Lord, and it's in your mighty name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. You know, the other day I saw there was this new item for sale. It's not really a new item, but I guess you could say it's a new item. It is a, Nordstrom was selling this, it's a rock just a little rock in a leather pouch, $80. People are buying it, so that's weird to me. And I'm sure if you go into Etsy, you can find all kinds of things like that. And driftwood lamps, that is just a piece of wood, driftwood just neglected, ignored pieces of wood that got carried down the river, got carried down the ocean, and now really serve no other purpose. And they're even, driftwood's dangerous if you burn it, it releases all these chemicals, can really harm you. And driftwood now, it serves no purpose to most other than some decorative element that looks kind of cool. 
And when I read Hebrews chapter 2 this week, Hebrews 2 is warning us to not let your faith become driftwood. Don't let it just become some meaningless, decorative item to your life. To pay attention to the cross of Christ. Because look at verse 1. How does it start? Verse 1. The first command in the whole book. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, what? Lest we drift away from it. And the very first word in verse 1, therefore, it reminding us, this is all coming out of what is true in chapter 1. That since Jesus is the great Son of God, since Jesus is the eternal God himself, since Jesus is the Messiah, higher than the angels, greater than the angels, our Savior, our Lord, the one who died for us, since that is true, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard so we don't drift away. Do you see the concern for this? This is really a concern of the whole book. The danger the writer of Hebrews is concerned with for the Hebrew Christian is them drifting away. Because he knows that once something is out of sight, it becomes out of mind. This book is saying, because they're tempted to go back to the Jewish way of things, right? This book is telling them, you can't leave Christianity behind and think everything will be okay. You can't neglect Christ and neglect following Christ and think everything will be fine. This is the danger. He says, you will drift away if you do that. You'll drift away from what you've heard. And listen, this danger is not extinct. This wasn't a unique problem to them. This is an ever-present danger for all of us right now. We must pay, all of us must pay, much closer attention to what we've heard in Jesus. Do you feel the urgency here? I mean, look at what he says. Therefore, we, he doesn't say, you guys, y'all must pay much closer attention to what you've heard. He includes himself in it and says, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard. So that tells us, this is a danger for us too, that we all must pay much closer attention to what we've heard, because this is our danger. We're all susceptible to this. And also, look at what he says next, third word, therefore we must in a way of speaking the truth, you really don't need that must there. He could just say, therefore, pay close attention to what you've heard. But he puts that must in there to drive it home, to feel the conviction and the burden of it, that this is an urgent thing that we all must do. We must do this. This requirement of every Christian in this room. We must pay much closer attention to what we've heard. And you might be thinking, hey, I'm doing pretty well in my Christian faith. I mean, I'm coming to church. I'm involved in a small group. I tithe. I, I serve. I, I do all these things. He would, say, he would say to you, great. Pay, what does he say? Pay much closer attention. Pay even closer attention to what you have heard so you don't drift away. This is the danger. And we got to pay attention so we don't go into drift mode, but we got to pay attention to Jesus himself. And look at what he says. Pay close attention to what we have heard so we don't drift away. So what have we heard? What do we need to remember that we've heard? What do we need to pay much closer attention to? The gospel. We never move on from the gospel. What you've heard we never take our eyes off the gospel. Faith comes by hearing what we've heard, 
We never lean on something else other than the gospel. We never learn anything greater than the gospel. And I love that this is, you know, often we are really tempted as, as Christians in the Bible Belt to think, I need some new insight. I, I, I need this new book. I need this new series. I need this new thing to really help me kind of get through this. Rather, the Bible says, no, what you need is the old thing to what you have already heard. We don't need seven keys. We need one cross, one empty tomb. This is what we need in our life, and we must pay attention to what have we heard. So what have you heard? There's a lot of things that go around in Christianity, a lot of things that get said in a lot of churches that you would hear, and they would send you to hell still. A lot of things get taught. And you could even say, oh, I've heard the gospel. Well, what is the gospel? So what have we heard? You hear, we hear in the gospel that we really are not impressive people that we don't have it all together, not a single one of us, that we've all messed up in some serious ways. We've sinned against others. We've sinned against God. And punishment is due us. Judgment and wrath are required for our sins because God is a just God. We just saw in verse two that there is a just retribution, a just payment for our sins. God, since he is a just God, a righteous God, the perfect judge, he can't be true to himself and just say to our sins, ah, it's no big deal, just, just forget about it, I'll forget about it. No, there must be a punishment. And in the gospel, we hear that Jesus met that punishment for us. The eternal son of God, that he was made lower than the angels. He became a man. And he lived a humble and sinless life. And he healed people. He rose people from the dead. He taught amazing things. He, he was an incredible human being. We hear in the gospel that Jesus never sinned, that he never hurt anyone. He never wronged anyone. But we hear in the gospel that he was greatly hurt, that he was severely wronged, that he was betrayed by one of his closest friends, one of his disciples. And then he was put on trial and that he was beaten and he was mocked and he was laughed at and that he was sentenced to death in a Roman execution chamber known as crucifixion. And they stripped him naked in front of all his family and friends. They nailed him to a cross. They gambled away his clothes, stabbed him as he hung there. And he died that day. And we hear in the gospel that he did this for us, for you. If you will believe, anyone who will believe, that he was dying, we hear in the gospel that when he was dying, something supernatural was happening, that he was dying for our sins, making payment for our sins. The death that we actually deserved, he put upon himself. The curse that was rightfully ours because of our sins, he said, I'll die for their sins. And he became our substitute. And we hear in the gospel that Jesus didn't stay dead either. That Jesus, we hear, he isn't a pile of bone fragments somewhere in Jerusalem. That he did rise from the dead, revealing that he really is the son of God. That he is unlike anyone else in all of human history. That he is the perfect lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And then we hear in the gospel that we are forgiven if we believe in Christ. That we're forgiven of all of our sins, all of our actual sins. God forgives us by faith in Jesus Christ that we never have to taste the wrath of God because Jesus tasted it all for us. And that if we believe, we hear in the gospel, that we, are, we too are raised from the dead, spiritually and then physically to come. 
and that we are to walk in the newness of life, that we are forgiven, that we're filled with the Spirit of God, and that we are no longer just sinners, but now we hear in the gospel that we are adopted sons and daughters of the Most High God, and we are co-heirs with Christ. And then, this is often forgotten, we hear in the gospel that we are now disciples of Christ. He doesn't just say, you're forgiven and go do whatever you want. He says, come and follow me. Imitate me. Learn from me. We see that we're called to pick up our cross and follow him. That we're called as Jesus' people, as as his church, to live for him and to live for his glory and to live for his namesake and to live for the good of one another and to love our neighbor as ourself and to live according to the pattern and power of Christ. This is what we've heard. And the writer of Hebrews says, pay attention to that. Or you will drift away. Can you think of people who have drifted away? Many of us know this verse isn't a scarecrow meant to threaten you into just being a good Christian. This isn't some hollow, yeah, yeah, whatever. If you've been a Christian for a while, you've seen this happen. In the 10, almost 10 years this church has existed, I could stand up here for an hour and just tell you the stories of people who have drifted away and how it happened. And if you've been a Christian for a while, you know this too. So how does it happen? How does it happen that people who seem to be serious about the gospel, serious about Jesus, serious about the glory of God, and then one day they've drifted away? And you might be thinking now, hey, I'm, I wouldn't do that. I'm a real Christian. I wouldn't do that. Friend, don't you think the people that drifted away thought they were real Christians too at some point? So did they lose their salvation? No. Rather, they showed they never had it. So how do you know if you have it? If you pay attention to what you've heard. If you keep walking with Jesus, if fruit keeps showing up, as Hebrews says, if you hold your original confidence firm to the end. I think this simple chart, this little mathematic equation from Hebrews shows it. Belief, professed belief, saying you believe, which is what all of us, if you're a Christian, have said, say we believe. But if it's plus it being lived and continued equals real faith. That's the way Hebrews would describe it. But then there's belief, professed belief. Remember, James says even the demons believe. So just professed belief plus it being left behind, it being drifted away from, means counterfeit faith. This is serious. We all know people this has happened to. And drifting doesn't happen overnight. It's slow steps, a a buildup of not paying attention to what you have heard, a a buildup of not following Christ. And you can see the connection here. I mean, look at verse 1. He states it positively and then negatively. Verse 1, what? Pay attention. That's the call. Why must we pay attention? The end of verse 1. So we don't drift away. And now skip down to verse 3. He states it negatively. How shall we escape if we neglect? So you see kind of the key words following here. Pay attention so you don't drift. Well, what, if you're not paying attention, what are you doing? You are neglecting this great salvation. You're neglecting Christ himself. If you don't pay attention to Jesus, it's because you're neglecting Jesus, which only means it is inevitable that you will fall away unless you turn. 
And this word drift, it's often used to describe a boat that's lost its anchor and it is just being carried away. And to pay attention means actively engaging with time and with emotions and thoughts and actions. They're focused on Jesus. It's the opposite of negligence. Negligence leads to drift. This is a serious spiritual danger. Verse three, how shall we escape? Escape what? The wrath of God. The just retribution for our transgressions and disobedience. Verse two, so how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Everyone in this room is being confronted gently from Hebrews 2, and it's asking us to answer the question, are you slowly neglecting Jesus in your life? Are you neglecting Jesus himself? In your love, in your actions, is, is Jesus a factor? In your motives, in your decisions, is Jesus your, the Lord of your life, that your great God and Savior, is he being neglected in your actual life? Is today the first time you've thought about Jesus this week? When we prayed, when Pastor Kevin prayed, when I prayed, is that really kind of maybe the first time you, you prayed at all this week? Have hobbies? These are not bad things. These are good things, but they can become bad things. Hobbies and work and family and money and, and presents and other things, have they crowded out the place of Jesus in your heart and mind? Negligence leads to drift. There are warning signs. And all the people that we could talk about that, yeah, this person drifted, this person drifted, I've seen it. There are usually three things that happen, all three of them, and they can happen in all kinds of different orders. These are the three things that always happen when people are neglecting Christ and they drift away. They neglect one, they neglect church attendance. They neglect Sunday morning worship. I, I've never met a Christian who is seriously committed to Christ who isn't also seriously committed to Sunday morning worship. I've I've, that Christian doesn't exist. The Bible doesn't acknowledge that kind of Christian exists. Hebrews 10, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. Habit becomes a negligent habit that can lead to drifting away. Secondly, they neglect friendships with other Christians. They neglect small groups. They neglect accountability. They neglect having friendships with other Christians because they know. Why? They know if they met with those people and talked to those people, they would encourage them to turn from that sin and to follow Jesus Christ. Holding them to follow Jesus, holding them, telling them, you got to turn from this sin. And so they just put up a wall because they're neglecting Christ. So they'll neglect Christ's people. The third one, this is usually the one where it starts. Negligence towards the Bible and prayer. Neglecting God's word because it's the Bible. Because Hebrews 4 says it is a double-sided sword which will confront us and will convict us and will call us on our sin. It'll alter us. And so if we don't want to be altered, we don't want to repent, we don't want to turn from Christ, from our sin to Christ, neglect the Bible. Also because if you don't love Jesus, You'll be bored with the Bible because it's all about Jesus. So, of course, you would neglect it. I bet you haven't picked up your high school biology textbook in probably if you're even in high school, you're probably not even picking it up. <laughs> you know why? Because you don't love it. You don't care about it. 
same reason you neglect the Bible is because you don't care about God. You don't care about Christ. And you neglect prayer. Because to hear God's voice in the Word and then to also have His ear in prayer, if you do those things, it means He's going to confront you and He's going to gently bring up your sin. And you don't want that. So you neglect the Bible in prayer. You neglect His people. And then you'll neglect being with them to worship them. So are you neglecting Him? Are you paying attention to Jesus? And if we see people that we know and love and these things are happening in their lives, we cannot lovingly stand by and just go, man, that's a shame, and watch them become unanchored and drift away. We can't give the gospel too much attention. Of Jesus' death and resurrection for us and seeing, because there are really kind of two elements of the entire gospel, of Jesus dying and rising again for our sins, and then the implications of that, of how believing that he died for me and rose for me, and then now how I live because of that, the shockwaves, kind of the ripple effects of the empty tomb. That's what we also must pay attention to. Because if you say, yeah, Jesus is the Lord of my life, but I'm a complete jerk to my friends and family, you're also not paying attention to what you've heard, that you are to love one another. You're to be kind to one another, tenderhearted, as God is towards us in Christ. When I think about paying attention, I immediately think about little kids. Little kids are so good at paying attention to some things. They have a selective paying attentionness. My son, when he was about two, and whenever we'd go to my parents' house and they live in spring, and we would turn on to Luetta, still about maybe eight, ten minutes left in the drive, we'd start turning on Luetta, and he'd go, almost there. Like, dude, you're two. How do you know that? I know adults that wouldn't even know where we are, but you kind of have an idea because we've done it so much. He's paying attention. He'll start grabbing his Mickey and getting it ready and getting his cars, and he's almost ready to go. And just the other day, he's watching Mickey Mouse Clubhouse. Forget about trying to talk to him during that. He'll just go, no. <laughs> he's locked in. And Natalie and I are talking, and we're walking and talking, and we just kind of got in front of him. He's like, move, move, move. I can't see. I can't see. Move. Because he's paying attention. He, he's not neglecting Mickey Mouse Clubhouse. And now he's even started laughing like Goofy, trying to. This cute little chuckle, and he tries to laugh like him. <laughs> he knows the characters, even these random cats. I'm like, how does he know that cat's name? Figaro. I, like, how does he know that? Because he's paid so much attention to it, he is becoming fluent in Mickey Mouse Clubhouse. When you pay attention to something, you become fluent in it. We are meant to become fluent in the gospel. To where wherever we are at in life, we can become really gospel thinkers informed by the grace of God, fluent in the gospel. That the gospel is not disconnected from our real life. That we become fluent in the gospel in our marriage in our work, and our parenting, for our friendships, our conflict, even, even our suffering. Because those are all things, marriage, work, friendships, conflict, suffering. These things can vie for your attention and get your attention off of Christ, and you'd be consumed with what's happening around you and what's happening to you. But if you pay attention to Christ, then you bring Christ with you into those things, and you become fluent in the gospel so you don't drift away. You know why Job never drifted away ultimately? Because he kept his attention on God. I know that my Redeemer lives, and I know that in my flesh I will see God. 
we need a big gospel. We know our, if you're married, we know the gospel is powerful enough to keep me from big sins. Things that we would say, oh, man, that's a really big, like adultery. And yeah, I wouldn't do that. I love, I love my wife. Jesus informs me to love my wife, to, to love my husband, and I, I wouldn't do that. But does that same big gospel, does that empower you to, when you just both got into bed and your spouse says, oh, will you go get my phone charger? Is that gospel big enough for you to go? Absolutely. Roll up and get out and go do that. If your gospel isn't big enough for that, I, I don't believe in your gospel. To love and to serve. The gospel's big enough for all of these. And we pay attention to Christ even in that moment. Because the gospel is your anchor. And if you, if you neglect Christ, you'll eventually drift away. In these small moments. Like the other day, I mentioned last week how we went to Disney World. And I had a great time. When we left Houston, and we had no problems when we left Houston. When we were trying to leave Orlando to come home, we encountered a big problem. Oliver, when we left Houston, he was two at the time. He didn't need a ticket. Uh, people in Houston said he's fine. He doesn't need a ticket. He's totally good. He didn't even have a boarding pass or anything. Just sat on our lap. It's fine. We leave Orlando. One week had passed. They made us get a ticket. They wouldn't let us take him on the plane. Said he's two. Everything was fine in Houston. You guys let us through in Houston. TSA let us through. The gate let us through. What changed? So, well, nothing. They messed up in Houston. When they're over two, when they hit their second birthday, they need a ticket. You got to buy him a ticket or you can't get on the plane with him. Right? And they said, the plane's booked. I'm like, are you kidding me? I'm like, well, I guess I could stay back. Then Ivy's almost crying. I'll never see you again. I'm like, no, I'll, I'll go on the next flight. It's fine. They said, we're sorry, but you, you got to buy a ticket. And it's $400 for a one-way ticket for a 30-pound kid. <laughs> so we got to do it. And as I've told this story, and as you're probably thinking it, like, man, and I have many people say, why don't you just tell him he's about to be two? Just tell him he's almost two. Just get on the point. I'm like, yeah, we could have done that, but would have lied. And I'm like, tell you, of course I was tempted to lie. I know Natalie was too. You would be too, unless you're Mr. Moneybags. <laughs> but it's in those moments like that where we have to pay attention to Christ more than our wallet. Is claiming Jesus, Lord of my life, worth $400 or 30 pieces of silver? We pay attention to what we have heard. It's little moments like that where drift begins because diluting your commitment to Christ will eventually lead to drifting. And that's the problem with these Hebrew Christians. They, are for, they have forgotten that Jesus really is our anchor and our attention. Look at verse 2. For since the message declared by angels, so he's doing a contrast here with the Old Testament, the law, and our great salvation. For the message declared by angels proved to be reliable. He's talking about the Old Testament. It was reliable, and every transgression, every sin, disobedience received a just retribution. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? If the gospel is an even greater word than the law, how will we escape if we neglect it? How will we think, oh, everything will be fine if we trample underfoot the Son of God? He's really showing there is a, there's no such thing as a no-fault negligence to the new covenant. There is a penalty for neglecting Christ, and it's steep, and it's eternal wrath in hell. So he's showing there's a validity to the gospel which leads to a vibrancy with Christ. And the apostles passed it down. Look at verse 
as he continues in verse 3. It was declared at first by the Lord. So Jesus proclaimed the gospel to us. Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, as we see in the gospels. It was attested to us by those who heard. These are the 12 disciples. Verse 4, while God also bore witness. So Jesus proclaimed it. The apostles proclaimed it. God, the triune God, also bore witness by signs and wonders. The book of Acts, the healings, the and miracles, various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. So he's going to great lengths to show the gospel is real. The risen Christ is real. And I love the last one, the various gifts distributed by the Holy Spirit. Your spiritual gift is an evidence of the risen Christ. Every time you see a spiritual gift happen in your small group, it is a testimony to the risen Christ. Our greeters are a testimony to the risen Christ. A gift of encouragement from someone is an evidence of the risen Lord Jesus. An act of service or hospitality, wisdom, the gift of teaching, these are all manifestations of the risen Lord Jesus. So it's no wonder why people would want to begin to neglect Sunday morning worship and want to neglect Christian friendships because they're all living testimonies to the risen Lord Jesus of him reigning and ruling over the universe. And that's what we see next. Look at verse five. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. That's the new earth, the new heavens and the new earth. The angels are not in control of that. Who is? Christ. It's been testified somewhere. And let's just pause right there. It's been testified somewhere. Just a little side note. If you struggle with scripture memory, be encouraged by this verse. Here you have the Bible saying, it's somewhere in the Bible. Okay, let that be a help to you. It's been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him? This is talking about humans. I can't, he's saying, God, I can't believe that you think about us. And the son of man, this is Jesus, that you care for him. You made him a little while lower than the angels. This is Christmas, the incarnation, Jesus becoming a human being. And what? You've crowned him with glory and honor putting everything in subjection under his feet, everything under his authority, everything under his rule. So the angels aren't the ones who rule over the world. Jesus is. Jesus is at the top, the top of the universe's org chart. He left nothing. Look at, look at the end of verse 8. Now he gives us some thoughts about what we just read from Psalm 8. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, if you write in your Bible, which I encourage, I would underline everything. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, to Jesus, everything under his authority, he left nothing outside his control. Nothing. I want you to consider the magnitude of this verse. There is nothing outside of the control of Jesus Christ. This is why we pray. Sometimes people say, you know, if God's sovereign, why pray? This is exactly why, because he is. Would you rather pray to a God who has no control? Would you pray to a God who there's nothing outside of his control? This is why we have hope. Because there's, he's left nothing outside of his control. This is why we have comfort. Because everything has been subjected to him. There's nothing outside of his control. Christian hope is not some superficial, placebo vague sense of everything's going to be okay. Sometimes we talk like that, and we got to stop talking like that. Oh, everything's going to be fine. Just, just, you know, just 
uh, everything's okay. Because look at the next verse. He says, he left nothing outside of his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. So he says, look, we know there is nothing outside of his control next, but sometimes it sure doesn't look like it. We don't, we don't yet see it. We don't see everything under his control. Sometimes it looks like things are not in control. But we know Jesus is in control. That's why the prosperity gospel is so ridiculous. That's why some of these things are so foolish. And you have Christians who are running from ISIS. Tell them, oh, everything's going to be great. Everything's going to work out in the end. Yeah, it might be with their head getting cut off. But in the end, the end end, he's working everything together for our good. We aren't in control, but our lives aren't out of control. He's got us. And so, yes, even though at present we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, there's cancer, loss of job, conflict. I mean, you can see all bundled into these things how you could go, hey, God's in control. And you go, yeah, but look at the world. ISIS and Christian persecution. These Hebrew Christians are facing persecution. Our brothers and sisters all around the world are being hunted. You can hear how people go, I thought Jesus was in control. Is this what his control looks like? You've got to say, he is. And he is slowly, patiently working everything towards his glory. ISIS will not get away with anything. Just because we don't see it and we don't see what he's doing doesn't mean he's not in control. Hebrews acknowledges that right here, even though it seems like the universe is falling down the stairs and everything's out of control, it doesn't mean we don't see the harmony because what? Look at verse 9. So yeah, we may not see everything in subjection to him, but we see him. You don't need to see everything in subjection. You don't need to see the universe from God's eye view. What you need to see is him. We see him. You don't need to see the universe following how you think it should go. You need to see him. He is your anchor. He is your sustainer. And you do see him. Have you seen him? This is not just like, a oh, you see him, think happy thoughts. No, you see him. Have you seen him? I see Jesus every day, and it is not on a piece of toast. Not with eyes, but with faith. With the eyes of faith, we see Jesus. Sometimes we say things like, oh, I just wish I could see this, or I just wish you know, God would prove it to me. That's not faith. Faith isn't just wanting to have your eyes met. You're you wanting your, your visual eyes to catch up with your spiritual eyes. Your spiritual eyes lead the way to what your physical eyes have not yet seen. Faith is better than 2020. Faith isn't rolling the dice or just thinking happy thoughts. What does Hebrews say faith is? What does it mean to see Jesus? And it's Hebrews 11. It's the best definition of faith in the whole Bible. And so this is the best definition of faith in the universe. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for 
And the conviction, conviction, that's not a word we use a lot, the conviction, settled, done, unshakable, the conviction of things not seen. I don't need to physically see Jesus because I have a conviction of things not seen. Assurance, reality of things not seen. I've never seen him with my eyeballs, and neither have you. But we should be assured and convinced that he died for my sins and rose again and has everything in subjection under his feet. And now also what? We see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, who was what? Crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Is that your conviction? Is that how you see Jesus crowned with glory and honor? And if if that is how you see Jesus, then you will walk with him. You will endure with him. If you don't see him as someone crowned with glory, reigning king, universe who loves you, you will drift from him. You'll see sin as more appealing. You'll see the ways of the world more appealing. You'll see alcohol and, and getting drunk and drugs and women and all these things. You'll see all these things as more appealing because you don't see him as crowned with glory and honor. You see him as someone who died and who didn't rise again and who doesn't, doesn't demand your life. But he's crowned with majesty, glory, and honor, and he did this for us. So do you see him this way? And he did it by the grace of God. We didn't deserve it. No one deserves to be a Christian. We didn't earn it, but he freely gave it to us. So is that what you see today? That by the grace of God, Jesus died for your sins and forgives you and gives you new life if you believe. If that's not what you see, then look to him and see. Turn from your sin and believe. And if you do see Jesus, Christian, don't let it get blurry. Rather, pay much closer attention to what you've heard. Whatever sin's vying for your attention, whatever temptations are crowding their way in, clear the way so you can see Jesus. Pay attention to him today. Don't turn the cross of Christ into a piece of decorative driftwood in your life. Pay much closer attention to him. Let's pray together. Thank you for listening. To find out more information about our church, visit us at makingmuchofjesus.org.